Hello, this is Peter Shea, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the March 28, 2023 edition of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This first article is called Netanyahu Delays Bid to Overhaul Israel's Judiciary as Protests Rage. The Israeli Prime Minister called for dialogue as civil unrest and work stoppages reached a crisis point, grinding the country to a halt. Jerusalem. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on Monday that he was delaying his government's campaign to exert greater control over the judiciary backing off in the face of furious public protest that has plunged Israel into one of the deepest crises of its history. In recent weeks, Mr. Netanyahu had been unyielding in his pursuit of the court overhaul, even as protests drawing hundreds of thousands have erupted across the country. On Sunday, he fired his defense minister for even suggesting that the plan be delayed. But on Monday, with civil unrest at new heights, with work stoppages hitting hospitals, airports, and schools, and with dissent growing in the military, he relented, if only for the moment. When there is a possibility of preventing a civil war through dialogue, I, as the Prime Minister, take a time out for dialogue, Mr. Netanyahu said in a speech announcing the postponement. The concession came as Itamar Ben-Gvir, the head of a powerful far-right political party in Mr. Netanyahu's governing coalition, said he was open to delaying a parliamentary vote on overhauling the judiciary, giving Mr. Netanyahu some breathing room as protests ground the country to a halt. By backing down, Mr. Netanyahu may be able to restore calm to the streets, but he now risks destabilizing the political coalition that he labored to assemble, finally forming a government in December. Many of his hard-right government partners had dug in their heels at any suggestion of a delayed vote. Even as he relented on the timing, Mr. Mr. Ben-Gvir made it clear that he was not giving it up. The reform will pass, he declared, vowing that no one will scare us. And it was unclear if Mr. Netanyahu's announcement would, in fact, appease opponents of the court plan. The Israeli opposition parties appeared to split over his offer of dialogue, while Yair Lapid, a former prime minister and the centrist leader of the opposition, welcomed it, if warily, Marev Mikaeli, the head of the center-left Labor Party, rejected it. How many more times can we fall into the trap of cooperating with Netanyahu, Ms. Mikaeli said, accusing him of buying time at the expense of our democracy. The protesters, too, seemed unpersuaded. So long as the legislation continues and has not been shelved, we will be in the streets, an informal protest body known simply as the Struggle HQ, said in a statement. This is another attempt to weaken the protest. Still, after the Netanyahu announcement, the head of Israel's main labor union called off a general strike planned for Tuesday. The tensions began after, after the Netanyahu government moved to give itself more control over the appointment of judges, including those who sit on the Supreme Court. It also moved to strip much of that court's power to review parliamentary decisions. Both sides have tried to wrap themselves in the mantle of democracy. The government's supporters contend that Israel cannot be a true democracy without giving elected lawmakers primacy over unelected judges. Critics argue that the removal of judicial oversight of parliament would pave the way for authoritarian rule at a time when Israel has the furthest right and most religiously conservative government of its history. 
Some also expressed fears that Mr. Netanyahu might have another agenda. The Prime Minister is currently standing trial on charges of corruption, and opponents worry that the court overhaul might make it easier for him to push through legislation that could allow him to avoid any punishment. Mr. Netanyahu has repeatedly denied that claim, but adding to the suspicions, Parliament voted last week to make it more difficult to declare Prime Ministers incapacitated and remove them from office. On Monday, in agreeing to hold off on any vote on the judiciary measure until after Parliament returns from an April recess, Mr. Netanyahu struck a tone of diplomacy. I am giving a real chance for a real conversation, he said. We insist on the need to bring about the necessary corrections in the legal system, and we will allow for an opportunity to achieve them with a broad consensus. That's the worthiest goal there is. It appeared more a moment of calculation than conciliation. Conciliation, however, and the Prime Minister made clear his scorn for the protesters. He likened some opponents of his plan to the woman in the biblical story of King Solomon, who would have allowed a disputed baby to be cut in two. The battle over the courts has become a proxy for much deeper social disagreements within Israeli society related to the relationship between secular and religious Jews and the future of Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. Orthodox Jews and settlers in the occupied West Bank say the court has historically acted against their interests and that it has for too long been dominated by secular judges. Jews of Middle Eastern descent also feel underrepresented on the court, which has mostly been staffed by judges from European backgrounds. Others say the court plays an important role as a check on parliament and the executive arm of the government. In urging this past weekend that the government delay a vote, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant noted that many military reservists had pledged to stand down from duty to protest the court overhaul. The rift within our society is widening and penetrating the Israel Defense Forces, he said in a televised speech on Saturday. He added, This is a clear and immediate and tangible danger to the security of the state. I shall not be a party to this. The next day, Mr. Mr. Gallant was out of a job, and the streets of Israel were in chaos. His firing heightened friction between Mr. Netanyahu and the Biden administration, which has become increasingly vocal about the move to weaken Israeli courts. The U.S. National Security Council issued a statement calling for compromise, expressing deep concern and stressing that democratic values have always been and must remain a hallmark of the U.S.-Israel relationship. On Monday, the White House welcomed word of the postponed vote. Compromise is precisely what we have been calling for, and we continue to strongly urge leaders to find a compromise as soon as possible, said Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary. We believe that it is the best path forward for Israel and, and all of its citizens, she told reporters in a White House news briefing. On Monday, the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, whose position is largely ceremonial, welcomed the postponement. I call on everyone to act responsibly, he said on Twitter. Protests and demonstrations on whichever side. Yes, violence, absolutely not. If one side wins, the state will lose. We must remain one people and one state, Jewish and democratic. This next article is called Heavily armed assailant kills six at Christian school. 
The shooter was also killed after police officers responded on Monday morning at the Covenant School, the authorities said. Nashville. A 28-year-old from Nashville fatally shot three children and three adults on Monday at a private Christian elementary school, officials said, leaving behind writings and detailed maps of the school and its security protocols. In the latest episode of gun violence that has devastated American families and communities, the assailant opened fire just after 10 a.m. inside the Covenant School. In the affluent Green Hills neighborhood, where children in preschool through sixth grade had just begun their final full week of classes before Easter break. The shooter, who the police identified as Audrey E. Hale, had entered the building by firing through a side door, armed with two assault-style weapons and a handgun, according to John Drake, the chief of the Metropolitan Nashville Police Department, and went to the second floor, firing shots before being killed by the police. Chief Drake said that the assailant was, at one point, a student at the school. Surveillance video released by the police on Monday night showed the dr shooter drive up to the school in what the police described as a Honda Fit. In the clip, two sets of glass doors shatter from bullets before the assailant ducks into the building through the broken glass. Wearing camouflage pants, a black vest, and a backward red baseball cap, the assailant walks through the rooms and hallways with a weapon drawn. At one point, the shooter can be seen walking in and out of the church office and down a hallway past the children's ministry as the lights of what appeared to be a fire alarm flash. There was confusion about the gender identity of the assailant in the immediate aftermath of the attack. Chief Drake said the shooter identified as transgender. Officials used she and her to refer to the shooter, but, according to a social media post and a LinkedIn profile, the shooter appeared to identify as male in recent months. The police in Nashville identified the six victims as Evelyn, Evelyn Dykaus, Haley Scruggs, and William Kinney, all nine. Cynthia Peake, 61, a substitute teacher, Mike Hill, 61, a custodian, and Katherine Kuntz, 60. Dr. Kuntz was the head of, head of school, according to the school website. Haley Scruggs was the daughter of Chad Scruggs, the, past, the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, according to a biography published online by his former church in Dallas. Covenant Presbyterian is connected to the elementary school. Chief Drake said it was too early to discuss a possible motive for the shooting, though he confirmed that the attack was targeted. The authorities were reviewing writings and had made contact with the shooter's father, Chief Drake said. We have a map drawn out of how this was all going to take place, he said. There's right now a theory that we may be able to talk about later, but it's not confirmed, so we'll put that out as soon as we can. The shooting shattered the wealthy enclave of Green Hills, a few miles south of downtown Nashville, where the small school and stone church sit atop a hill nestled in a residential neighborhood filled with stately homes and lush landscaping. Founded in 2001 as a ministry of the Covenant Presbyterian Church, the Covenant School bills itself as intentionally small, with about 200 students, according to its website and a student-to-teacher ratio of 8 to 1. Tuition costs around $16,000 per year. Sirens and the buzz of helicopters pierced the still of a sunny spring morning on Monday, sending residents of the area out of their homes to wait for news about the shooting or assurances that their children at neighboring schools had been released from lockdown. A few women gathered around a live stream of the news conference, gasping and shaking their heads. It's terrifying when you see parents running up the hill, said Lisa DeBusk, 43, who lives in Green Hills. 
She said she had considered sending her daughter to Covenant, calling it the sweetest, most wonderful place. We're all resilient, but we shouldn't have to be in this, she, said, she added. I never would have imagined this. The police received a report of the shooting at 10.13 a.m. and heard gunshots on the second floor when they arrived at the school. A police spokesman, Don Aaron, said, Officers went there, saw the assailant shooting, and two of the officers opened fire, killing the assailant at 10.27 a.m. in a lobby-type area on the second floor. Mr. Aaron said, The school does not have a police officer guarding it, he said. Kendra Loney, a spokeswoman for the Nashville Fire Department, said that school children and members of the school's staff were escorted out of the building after the shooting and that a total of 108 people had been transported to the nearby Woodmont Baptist Church. The pupils, dressed in the school uniform of red and black polo shirts, plaid skirts, and khaki shorts and pants, held hands as they walked from the buses, escorted by the police, into a conference-like room inside the church. Elsewhere in the building, parents waited to learn if their children were safe. Rachel Ann Elrod, the Metro Nashville School Board Chair, said she was inside the worst waiting room you can imagine, as officials said about reuniting children with their parents. Some, she said, were debating how to manage the rest of the day after such a traumatic morning. They're mostly figuring out how they're going to talk to their children about going for uh, children going forward about this, Miss Elrod said. What is the next best step? What should they do next? Do we take them to get ice cream? Take them to the playground? Do we ask them what they saw? Do we not ask them what they saw? Do we bring them to school tomorrow? Is there school tomorrow? Rachel Dibble, whose children attend a different private school in Nashville, had also visited with Covenant families, some of whom she knew through youth sports. It has to stop, Miss Dibble said of school, of school shootings. I want a politician to sit in a church with families and 250 kids downstairs that are white as a sheet and trembling in gray and trembling in gray and yellow and green and blue because of the shock. Speaking of the students, she added, they started this morning. They had their cute little uniforms on. They probably had some Fruit Loops. Their whole lives changed today. There is no consensus on what constitutes a mass shooting. Groups define it differently, depending on the circumstances. But the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit research group that tracks gun violence using police reports, news coverage, and other public sources, defines a mass shooting as one in which at least four people are killed or injured. As of late March, the archive has counted 130 mass shootings in the United States in 2023. Calling the Nashville shooting sick and a family's worst nightmare, President Biden again pushed Congress on Monday to enact gun control legislation. He has repeatedly called for such a ban on assault weapons, including during his recent visit to Monterey Park, California, where a gunman killed 11 people at a dance studio in January. It's about time that we begin to make some progress, Mr. Biden said. Even as school shootings become more frequent, the shooting at Covenant was unusual. Many of the highest profile school shootings in recent years have taken place at public schools, in part because they are far more, there are far more public schools in the United States nearly 100,000 compared with about 30,000 private schools. Shootings at elementary schools are also relatively uncommon, making up less than 20% of all incidents of gun violence on school grounds. According to the K-12 school shooting database, most incidents of gun violence on school campuses, including active shooter incidents, happen at high schools. After spending time in Woodmont Baptist, 
Woodmont, Baptist, Melissa Trevathan, 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 the owner of a counseling ministry, grieved the loss of Dr. Kuntz, whom she said she had gotten to know through her work with children. Mr. Trevathan, who had come with Pippa, a therapy dog in training, to offer support, characterized Dr. Kuntz as very magnetic and strong, and recalled her passion for education, sense of humor, and love for adventure. She would go to the ultimate in protecting her kids, Miss Trevathan said. A correction was made on March 28, 2023. An earlier version of this article misstated the ratio of students to teachers at, at the Covenant School. It has a student-teacher ratio of 8 to 1, not 1 to 8. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This next article is called, Can a Machine Know That We Know What It Knows? Some researchers, some researchers claim that chatbots have developed a theory of mind, but is that just our own theory of mind gone wild? Mind reading is common among us humans, not in the ways that, physics that psychics claim to do it, by gaining access to the warm streams of consciousness that fill every individual's experience, or in the ways that mentalists claim to do it, by pulling a thought out of your head at will. Every day, mind reading is more subtle. Every day, every day, mind reading is more subtle. We take in people's faces and movements, listen to their words, and then decide or intuit what might be going on in their heads. Among psychologists, such intuitive psychology, the ability to attribute to other people mental states different from our own, is called theory of mind but its absence or impairment has been linked to autism, schizophrenia, and other developmental disorders. Theory of mind helps us understand, helps us communicate with, the, with and understand one another. It allows us to enjoy literature and movies, play games, and make sense of our social surroundings. In many ways, the capacity is an essential part of being human. What if a machine could read minds too? Recently, Mikkel... Kosinski, Mikhail Kosinski, a psychologist at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, made just that argument, that large language models like OpenAI's ChatGPT and GPT-4, next word prediction machines trained on vast amounts of text from the internet, have developed theory of mind. His studies have not been peer-reviewed, but they prompted scrutiny and conversation among cognitive scientists who have been trying to make the often asked question these days, trying to take the often asked question these days, can Jap GPT, GPT do this? And move it into the realm of more robust scientist, scientific inquiry. What capacities do these models have, and how might they change our understanding of our own minds? Psychologists wouldn't accept any claim about the capacities of young children just based on anecdotes without your interactions with them just based on anecdotes about your interactions with them, which is what seems to be happening with ChatGPT, said Allison Gopnik, a, psych a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and one of the first researchers to look into theory of mind in the 1980s. You have to do quite careful and rigorous tests. 
Dr. Kaczynski's previous research showed that neural networks trained to analyze facial features, like nose shape, head angle, and emotional expression, could predict people's political views and sexual orientation with a startling degree of accuracy. About 72% in the first case, and about 80% in the second case. His recent work on large language models uses classic theory of mind tests that measure the ability of children to attribute false beliefs to other people. A famous example is the Sally Ann test, in which a girl, Ann, moves a marble from a basket to a box when another girl, Sally, isn't looking. To know where Sally will look for the marble, researchers claimed, a viewer would have to exercise theory of mind, reasoning about Sally's perceptual evidence and belief formation. Sally didn't see Anne move the marble to the box, so she still believes it is where she has left it, in the basket. Dr. Kaczynski presented 10 large language models with 40 unique variations of these theory of mind tests. Descriptions of situations like the Sally Ann test, in which a person, Sally, forms a false belief. Then he asked the models questions about those situations, prodding them to see whether they would attribute false beliefs to the characters involved and accurately predict their behavior. He found that GPT 3.5, released in November 2022, did so 90% of the time, and GPT 4, released in March 2023, did so 95% of the time. The conclusion? Machines have theory of mind. But soon after these results were released, Tomer Ullman, a psychologist at Harvard University, responded responded with a set of his own experiments, showing that small adjustments in the prompts could completely change the answers generated by even the most sophisticated large language models. If a container was described as transparent, the machines would fail to infer that someone could see into it. The machines had difficulty taking into account the testimony of people in these situations, and sometimes couldn't distinguish between an object being inside a container and being on top of it. Martin Sapp, a computer scientist at Carnegie Mellon University, fed more than 1,000 theory-of-mind tests into large language models and found that the most advanced transformers, like ChatGPT and GPT-4, passed only about 70% of the time. In other words, they were 70% successful at attributing false beliefs to the people described in the test situations. The discrepancy between his data and Dr. Kaczynski's could come down to differences in the testing, but Dr. Sapp said that even passing 95% of the time would not be evidence of real theory of mind. Machines usually fail in a patterned way, unable to engage in abstract reasoning, and often making spurious correlations, he said. Dr. Ullman noted that machine learning researchers have struggled over the past couple of decades to capture the flexibility of human knowledge in computer models. This difficulty has been a shadow finding, he said, hanging behind every exciting innovation. Researchers have shown that language models will often give wrong or irrelevant answers when primed with unnecessary information before a question is posed. Some chatbots were so thrown thrown off by hypothetical discussions about talking birds that they eventually claimed that birds could speak. Because their reasoning is sensitive to small changes in their inputs, scientists have called the knowledge of these machines brittle. Dr. Gopnik compared the theory of mind of large language models to her own understanding of general relativity. I have read enough to know what the words are, she said, 
But if you asked me to make a new prediction or to say what Einstein's theory tells us about a new phenomenon, I'd be stumped because I don't really have the theory in my head. By contrast, she said, human theory of mind is linked with other common sense reasoning mechanisms. It stands strong in the face of scrutiny. In general, Dr. Kozinski's work and the responses to it fit into the debate about whether the capacities of these machines can be compared to the capacities of humans, a debate that divides researchers who work on natural language processing. Are these machines stochastic parrots or alien intelligences or fraudulent tricksters? A 2022 survey of the field found that of the 480 researchers who responded, 51% believed that large language models could eventually understand natural language in some non-trivial sense, and 49% believed that they could not. Dr. Ullman doesn't discount the possibility of machine understanding or machine theory of mind, but he is wary of attributing human capacities to non-human things. He noted a famous 1944 study by Fritz Heider and Marianne Simmel in which participants were shown an animated movie of two triangles and a circle interacting. When the subjects were asked to write down what transpired in the movie, nearly all described the shapes as people. Lovers in the two-dimensional world, no doubt. Little triangle, little triangle number two and sweet circle, one participant wrote. Triangle one, hereafter known as the villain, spies the young love. Ah, it's natural and often socially required to explain human behavior by talking about beliefs, desires, intentions, and thoughts. This tendency is central to who we are, so central that we sometimes try to read the minds of things that don't have minds, at least not minds like our own. This next article is called, People Started Buying Crocs During the Pandemic. They Can't Stop. While other brands that thrived with customers in quarantine have dropped off, sales of the easily slipped on clogs are up nearly 200% since 2019. Like Peloton, Etsy, and Zoom, Crocs saw its business boom during the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. The company is aesthetically questionable, but easily slipped on clogs were the perfect footwear for Americans puttering around their homes, gardens, and kitchens during the quarantine. But while many people got off their exercises, cut back on DIY arts projects, and resumed in-person meetings as a sense of normalcy returned to the world, they have kept their crocs on. Magua Nduga of Raleigh, North Carolina, bought his first pair in 2020, and now has five. And he is spreading his enthusiasm, giving his parents and sisters each a pair for Christmas. They're not the most appealing things to look at, Mr. Nduga, 25, said. But they offer support to his flat feet and can be worn whether he's working at his standing desk at home, running errands, hiking on the weekends, or lifting weights. I roll into the gym with my Crocs on and everything, and people ask, aren't you going to change shoes? Mr. Nduga said, no, this is how I'm going to live life for now. Fans, fans like Mr. Nduga, along with celebrities like Questlove, who has been known to support the clogs at award shows, have helped Crocs emerge as a rarity in the business world. It is a pandemic winner whose success might outlast pandemic shopping behavior. The stock prices and sales of Peloton, Etsy, and Zoom have dropped since their sharp rises in the pandemic, but Crocs stock has soared on 167% since January 2020. The company's annual sales 
have increased 200% since 2019. At a recent conference in New York held by the wealth manager UBS, Andrew Rees, the chief executive of Crocs, said he often heard that the investment community from the investment community that Crocs was a pandemic beneficiary and it's going to return to its norm. There is very little chance of what of that happening, quite honestly, said Mr. Rees. Mr. Rees told a room of investors and, and analysts. Last month, after announcing that quarterly sales rose 61%, Crocs said it anticipated another record year of growth. Its management team laid out an ambitious business plan that promised more robust profits and revenues when many in the retail industry are trying to temper investor expectations. Part of the surge in overall sales is coming from the company's acquisition of the footwear brand, Hey Dude. Croc said in November that it expected revenue from its namesake shoe line to reach more than $5 billion in three years, a nearly 90% increase. It sees its adjusted operating margin staying around 26%, even as other consumer companies are feeling a squeeze in their profits. Of course, the company, which is based in Broomfield, Colorado, might not reach these goals. Fashion is notoriously fickle, and footwear is a category that relies on the popular apparel of the moment, such as the latest jean cut. But the reason for the optimism, company executives and analysts say, is a steady stream of new products and shrewd marketing, especially on social media, where Crocs has cultivated a devoted customer base. It has 165,000 followers on Twitter, and even more on TikTok, 920,600, Instagram, 1.6 million, and Facebook, 6.9 million. Over the years, the brand has developed a distinctive online voice through its use of emojis and memes, making shoppers feel that its aim is creating a community rather than just getting people to buy more clogs. The company is adept at seizing cultural moments, as it did when it tweeted about Questlove wearing black Crocs on the Oscars champagne-colored carpet this month, and during the pandemic, it drove customers to its mobile app with the promise of discounts, which it called Appy Hours. It's not like people haven't heard of using social media to create brand awareness and brand relevance, but this management team is just doing it better, Jay Soul, a retail analyst at UBS, said. Crocs has steadily become more popular among Generation Z shoppers, a coveted demographic for any retail brand. In the fall, teenagers ranked Crocs number five on a list of footwear brands, according to a biannual Piper Sandler survey. In 2017, it was number 38. Hey Dude also cracked the top 10 in the most recent survey. The more obsessive customers collect Crocs, which often sell for $49.99, it's not uncommon for someone to have a dozen pairs or more. They can be accessorized with gibbets, the personalized trinkets pushed into the holes of, of Crocs clogs. Adriana Elaine, who has at least 60 pairs, is the kind of loyal customer Crocs is counting on to spur future growth. She likes the look of the, of the sandals and the wedges, is active in the Crocs Facebook fan page, and sees the brand as a way to connect with others. My Crocs are a part of my self-care, said Mrs. Aline, 33, of Roanoke, Virginia. I'm not going to give up my therapy because the economy is going to crap. You go on for the shoe, but you stay for the community. Her 8-year-old son is now hooked, too. He owns 20 pairs and recently received a pair from his father, who lives in Kuwait. 
Miss Aline and her son have a long way to go before catching up to Doogie Lish Sand Tiger, whose 2,100 pairs of Crocs are reputed to be the most. This type of customer loyalty, this type of customer loyalty is cost efficient because a company has to spend more money and time on marketing, time on marketing to win over a new shopper. The chance of them buying another one is high, Mr. Soul said of customers who buy into Crocs's community aspect. That means you don't have to remarket them. To reach its ambitious sales targets, Crocs will rely on sandals and lightweight Hey Dude shoes in addition to its classic clog. Like any large company, the meteoric growth of the early years becomes more and more difficult to replicate, said Matt Powell, the founder of Spurwink River, a retail consulting firm. They recognize that the clog is the most important product. They've worked really hard to diversify away from that to take some pressure off of it. Crocs's sandals carry lower profit margins than its clogs, but people generally buy sandals more frequently than other types of footwear. And a person who buys a pair of Croc sandals, Mr. Rees said, is one who can be converted into a clog wearer. Crocs's sandal business had $310 million in sales in 2022, and the company is projecting $400 million this year. Mr. Rees says he and his team have more work to do overseas, noting that sandals are a $30 billion global category. They hope to increase sales in India and countries throughout Southeast Asia where many people wear sandals year-round. Currently, North America accounts for 60% of all sales for the Crocs brand. Hey Dude has its own devoted following. On average, a typical customer owns four pairs of its shoes. The brand has expanded under Crocs by tapping into the company's marketing resources and relationships with national retailers. It is on track to reach $1 billion in sales this year. During times of economic uncertainty, companies often spend less money on marketing. Croc said it would continue to lean on its slate of influencers, brand partnerships, and digital advertising campaigns. It invests about 7-8% to of its sales into marketing, and the company said it would spend more than $200 million on marketing initiatives this year. That will include rolling out more celebrity and big-name partnerships targeted towards specific regions around the world and having a presence at live events like the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. This wasn't a push that emerged during COVID. The company's marketing strategy started to change when Mr. Rees took over in 2017. The focus became all digital. No more TV ads, for example. And celebrities like Post Malone, Zoe Deschanel, and Bad Bunny were signed to endorsement deals. The elements of Crocs' current expansion plan are not all that dissimilar from what the company tried to do under previous management teams. After its debut in 2006 as a publicly traded company, it released leather boots and golf shoes and bought gibbets. It opened hundreds of stores from fashionable neighborhoods like Soho in New York to Dowdy airports. Executives said that initial expansion had come at a high cost. Without a cohesive global marketing strategy, the company lost focus on the classic clog. As new merchandise flooded the market, the brand lost relevancy. They were selling everybody and weren't delivering to very many people, at least consistently, Mr. Powell said. Crocs faces the risk that the cultural winds can shift away from them. Customers could start falling in love with another type of shoe. But analysts say... Its management team has shown that it can pinpoint consumer behavior and use those insights to sell even more shoes that customers like. They found a way to get into the better market. 
the more fashion-forward market, Mr. Powell said. They really are hitting on a lot of the right notes right now. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This next article is called, After Doling Out Huge Loans, China is Now Bailing Out Countries. Beijing is emerging as a new heavyweight in providing emergency funds to debt-ridden countries, catching up to the IMF as a lender of last resort. Since the end of World War II, the International Monetary Fund and the United States have been the world's lenders of last resort, each wielding broad influence over the global economy. Now a new heavyweight has emerged in providing emergency loans to debt-ridden countries, China. New data shows that China is providing ever more emergency loans to countries including Turkey, Argentina, and Sri Lanka. China has been helping countries that have either geopolitical significance, like a strategic location, or lots of natural resources. Many of them have been borrowing heavily from Beijing for years to pay for infrastructure or or other projects. While China is not yet equal to the IMF, it is catching up fast, providing $240 billion of emergency financing in recent years. China gave $40.5 billion in such loans to distressed countries in 2021 according to a new study by American and European experts who drew on statistics from aid data, a research institute at William & Mary, a university in Williamsburg, Virginia. China provided $10 billion in 2014 and none in 2010. By comparison, the IMF lent $68.6 billion to countries in financial distress in 2021, a pace that has stayed fairly steady in recent years, except for a jump in 2020, at the start of the pandemic. In many ways, China has replaced the United States in bailing out indebted low- and middle-income countries. The U.S. Treasury's last sizable rescue loan to a middle-income country was a $1.5 billion credit to Uruguay in 2002. The Federal Reserve still provides very short-term financing to other industrialized countries when they need extra dollars for a few days or weeks. China's emerging position as a lender of last resort reflects its evolving status as an economic superpower at a time of global weakness. Dozens of countries are struggling to pay their debts as a slowing economy and rising interest rates push many nations to the brink. The IMF has also stepped up its own bailouts in recent weeks in response to Russia's war in Ukraine and the aftereffects of the pandemic. The IMF reached a preliminary agreement last Tuesday to lend $15.6 billion to Ukraine, a day after its board approved a $3 billion loan to Sri Lanka. Beijing's new role is also an outgrowth of the decade-old Belt and Road Initiative, the the signature project of Xi Jinping, China's top leader, to develop geopolitical and diplomatic ties through financial and commercial efforts. China has lent $900 billion to 151 lower-income countries around the world, mainly for the construction of highways, bridges, hydroelectric hydroelectric dams, and other infrastructure. American officials have accused China of engaging in debt-trap diplomacy, 
which is saddling countries with excessive debt for construction projects carried out by Chinese companies, often using Chinese engineers, Chinese workers, and Chinese equipment. Chinese officials contend that they have built much-needed infrastructure that the West talked about for decades, but never completed. Unlike many lenders to developing countries, state-controlled financial institutions in China largely doled out loans at adjustable rates. The payments due on many of these loans have doubled in the past year, putting many nations in a difficult financial spot. China, for its part, blames the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, for putting pressure on countries by pushing up interest rates. China's Central Bank is extending the separate emergency loans at fairly high interest rates to Laos, Pakistan, Nigeria, Suriname, and other financially distressed countries. China's state-owned banks face losses if Beijing does not bail out their borrowers, but may profit if other countries manage to stay current on their debt payments. China charges somewhat high interest rates for emergency credit to middle-income countries in distress, typically 5%. That compares with 2% for loans from the IMF, the new study found. The U.S. Treasury charged almost the same interest rate as China, 4.8%, when it made rescue loans to middle-income countries in the 1990s through 2002. The Fed has recently been charging about 1% for its very short-term loans to other industrialized countries. China's emergency lending has gone almost entirely to middle-income countries that owe a lot of money to state-controlled Chinese banks. More than 90% of China's emergency loans in 2021 were in its own currency, the renminbi. It is not unusual for a country to use its own currency in international rescues. The dollar displaced European currencies in the borrowing of many developing countries after, after the United States played a central role in resolving the Latin American debt crisis in the 1980s. In lending in renminbi, 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 Renminbi. <laughs> Beijing is furthering its efforts to limit reliance on the U.S. dollar as the go-to global currency. When borrowing Renminbi from China's central bank using so-called swap agreements, the indebted countries then keep the Renminbi in their central reserves while spending their dollars to repay foreign debts. Some countries, like Mongolia, now hold much of their currency reserves in Renminbi. After previously holding them mainly in dollars, said Brad Parks, the executive director of Aid Data and an author of the study. Such financial moves tether countries more closely to China, since the renminbi, renminbi is hard to spend except to buy Chinese goods and services. In their meeting last week, Mr. Xi and President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia agreed that more of their country's trade and other commercial ties will be connected to the renminbi. Foreign Minister Qin Gang of China has strongly defended his country's debt record, noting that China allowed dozens of the world's poorest countries to delay debt payments in 2020 and 2021. China has suspended more debt service payments than any other group of 20 member, he said in a March 2nd speech at a gathering of foreign ministers of the large group of 20 countries. As China increasingly steps into the role of emergency lender and its own economy slows, it is also reassessing its broader lending program. 
More recently, it has begun pulling back from infrastructure loans. According to data from China's Ministry of Commerce, the annual value of completed contracts in Belt and Road Initiative countries fell to $85 billion last year, from a peak of $98 billion in 2019. We are seeing the emergence of another big financial rescue player in the international financial system. As the cost of Belt and Road Initiative loans become clear, said Christoph Trebesk, the research the research director for international finance and macroeconomics at the Kiel Institute for the World Economy in Germany and an author of the study. This next article is called Hoping for a Comeback in a Town with Little to Come Back to. Officials have vowed that Rolling Fork, Mississippi, ravaged by a tornado, will come back better than ever. But first, people, but first, people need food, water, shelter, medicine, and life's other necessities. <clears throat> Rolling Fork, Mississippi. There's no funeral home that's capable yet of burying the dead. None of the few restaurants or food stores in town have reopened, so for many people, their only meals come from volunteers on the side of the road. If houses are still standing, in many cases their residents are waiting for power or for water that's more than a trickle. If the car still drives, at least one of its windows was probably blown out. Residents are lucky if they can get a prescription filled. Schools are still closed. Officials have vowed in recent days that Rolling Fork, which was struck last week by tornadoes that killed 13 people in the town and in surrounding Sharkey County, will come back better than ever. But in a poor rural area, where life has, was already lived on the margins, just navigating the basics of food, water, and shelter can seem almost insurmountable, with no immediate fix in sight. It's taken a toll on every single individual that lives here, said Natalie Perkins, the Sharkey County Emergency Management Coordinator and the editor and publisher of the Deer Creek Pilot, the weekly newspaper in Rolling Fork. In some cases, families are essentially starting over, their homes and businesses ripped apart by the tornadoes. For some, the first hurdle is the most agonizing, waiting for the two funeral homes to get up and running so they can make arrangements for relatives who were killed. I'm going to see a therapist after going through what I went through, said Evelyn McCann, who is staying in a donated hotel room in Greenville, Mississippi, about 40 miles from Rolling Fork. Her home had been destroyed, and she said she was overwhelmed by the uncertainty of what lies ahead. We don't have nothing, Diane Shelton, her sister-in-law, said. Rolling Fork was the community hardest hit by the storm system, which scraped a 170-mile trail of destruction across Mississippi and Alabama, killing at least 26 people in all. The Mississippi Delta, the wedge of fertile farmland where cotton has been grown for generations between the Mississippi and Yazoo rivers, is accustomed to foul weather. Plenty of storms have darkened the sky, and flooding has been a recurring concern over the years. We've had tornadoes, don't get me wrong, said Orlon Derek Smith, who grew up in Rolling Fork and was back helping relatives and their neighbors after the storm. He noted that, that the terrain made it particularly vulnerable to tornadoes, with the sprawl of open, flat-as-pancake farmland. They ride the flat land and tear things up, he said but nothing this catastrophic. Tornadoes in the South, spe specifically Mississippi, 
are not uncommon this time of year. They don't have much of a season here, Dr. Harold Brooks, a senior research scientist at NOAA's National Severe Storms Laboratory, said, They get stuff all through the year. Climatology, March into April, climatologically, March into April is when tornadoes in the South are most likely to occur. The probability of tornadoes occurring in the South increases from March through mid-April, before shifting seasonal weather patterns create an environment more likely for tornadoes across the plains in late April, May, and June. At the Rolling Fork Motel, DeMarcus Jackson knew just how long the road back could be. He and his family, his brother, his nephews, his cousins, had piled into rooms rooms there after their home was destroyed in December during a tornado in the nearby town of Anguilla. It's been exhausting, Mr. Jackson said, when you've already lost everything to come back and be in another one. Now his family was stuck, along with others who had been displaced, in crowded and stuffy rooms that have not had electricity since the storm last week. The water coming from the faucets had very little pressure. The children were restless. Everyone was. It feels like jail, said his brother, Duantre Jackson, sitting outside on a chair. He was unsure of what would come next, for him or for the community that had become his temporary home. The two-lane highway that runs through the town was lined on Monday with indistinguishable piles of metal and wood and the carcasses of wrecked cars. Chuck's Dairy Bar, a diner that had long been an institution in Rolling Fork, was now nothing more than its slab and the battered metal walk-in freezer that employees had huddled inside to ride out the tornado. Behind it was the obliterated mobile home park with a wreckage, a wig, a mop, clothes, a slow cooker, trucks, told a story of the lives that had been upended and lost. In other areas, homes were swept from their foundations, and trees, including some that had been rooted in yards for generations, were yanked from the ground. We'd be at the right address, and the house would be three doors down, said John, John Gebhardt, a military science professor at the University of Mississippi, who helped with rescues and with organizing a shelter and resource hub. The night I got here, I cried while I worked, he said. There were tears associated with tragedy and tears associated with pride. Outsiders have rushed into Rolling Fork, handing out meals and making runs to Walmart to buy t-shirts and underwear. Coraline Gilgore, Carolyn Gil- Kilgore, has been driving back and forth from outside Jackson, the state capital, about 80 miles away, to hand out food with her husband. Little man, you need a plate, she told a boy playing outside the Rolling Fork Motel. On the menu today, on the menu today, pork loin, hot dogs, hamburgers, potato chips, and sports drinks. Clamshell containers filled the back of a pickup truck they were driving around town. We're trying to reach the people who can't get to us, Miss Kilgore said. A shelter has been opened in an old National Guard armory in Rolling Fork, and there is a single open motel. Those who did not leave town wanted to stay with family or as close to their property as they could. Miss Kilgore took notice of single-family homes that had become crowded with extended families. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Dolores Kelly's home was largely spared. The tornado had scraped the back of her house, 
leaving a hole under her back door that she stuffed with a blanket. She was struggling to keep a window in the front of her house from falling out. This tape ain't stickin', this tape ain't stickin', she said with a huff. Volunteers drove, drove by handing out ham sandwiches and snacks. She nudged her five-year-old granddaughter to thank them. Ms. Kelly, 52, worried about her. The little girl had asked, what, asked her whether the tornado was coming back. Miss Kelly also worried about Rolling Fork. She did not know how it would claw its way back. It's going to take a lot, she said. Even before the tornado, Rolling Fork, like much of the Mississippi Delta, had been struggling. The population has dwindled over the years, driven away by the numbing poverty and the lack of economic opportunity. State and federal officials have promised an infusion of resources. City leaders described hopes of resurgence. But Miss McCann found it difficult to be optimistic. It's going to take God's hands, Miss McCann said, to put everything back together in Rolling Fork. The physical destruction, as devastating as it is, has been compounded by an emotional toll as people try and fail to rid their minds of the terror of riding out the storm. On Sunday, Miss Shelton said she could finally get some rest. She had been at the clinic at the old armory in Rolling Fork when Linda Short, the mayor of Mayersville, another town in Sharkey County, saw her and said, I know you can't lay on a cot. Miss Short got her a room at a hotel in, in the Greenville, about 40 miles away. There she had a bed, air conditioning, electricity, and running water. She was safe. She was as comfortable as she could be a month after back surgery. Her sleeping was fitful. It's really not letting you rest, she said. You can still hear it, still see it. When she closed her eyes, she went right back to Rolling Fork. This next article is called Facing Extinction, but available for, for selfies in Japan's animal cafes. Critically endangered species and ones banned from international trade are among the hundreds of types of birds, reptiles, and mammals that researchers identified at 142 animal cafes. In Japan, it's possible to enjoy a coffee while an owl perches on your head, or to sit at a bar where live penguins stare out at you from behind a plexiglass wall. The country's exotic animal cafes are popular with locals as well as visitors seeking novelty, cuteness, and selfies. Customers can even buy animals at some of the cafes and bring them home. But visitors of these venues may not realize that many of these cafes put wildlife conservation, their own, and public health, and animal welfare at risk. In an exhaustive survey of Japan's animal cafes published earlier this year, in the journal Conservation Science and Practice, researchers found 3,793 individual animals belonging to 419 different species, 52 of which are threatened with extinction. Nine of the exotic species they found, including endangered slow lorises and critically endangered radiated tortoises, are strictly banned from international trade. Some species we saw are, are of very questionable origins, said Marie Seigod, Seigod, now a veterinarian and wildlife biologist at the National Museum of Natural History in Paris, who conducted the study as a postdoctoral researcher at Kyoto University. 
Many of the animals are most likely caught in the wild, and this has implications for their long-term survival. The potential for transmission of disease from animals to humans is also worrying, Dr. Sigod said. As a typical cafe, at a typical cafe, individual animals of different species are crammed together in a small room where people are allowed to touch them while having a drink, said Cecil Sarabian, a cognitive ecologist at Nagoya University and co-author of the findings. Many of the animals are under stress, and it's an excellent interface for the exchange of potential pathogens, she said. The laws governing animal cafes are quite weak, Dr. Sarabian said, added, and the researchers are calling on Japan's government to strengthen them. Officials at Japan's Ministry of the Environment did not respond to requests for comment. Exotic animal cafes are not uniquely Japanese. Since the first known animal cafe opened in Taiwan in 1998, featuring cats and dogs, the concept has rapidly spread across the region. A 2020 study identified 111 such businesses in Asia, primarily in Japan, but also in China, Thailand, Taiwan, Indonesia, South Korea, Vietnam, the, Philipp the Philippines, and Cambodia. Japan, however, seems to have become the epicenter of the phenomenon, Dr. Sagad said. The researchers visited some cafes in Japan in person and also searched, searched online and across social media in both English and Japanese for keywords such as pet cafe, otter cafe, and petting zoo. They found 142 exotic animal cafes across the Japanese archipelago and made a list of all the species they observed in photos posted on the cafe's websites and social media accounts, excluding insects. The number and diversity of animals came as a surprise, Dr. Sigod said. Birds accounted for 62% of species, and 40% of them were owls. But the researchers also recorded dozens of reptiles and mammals. 38 of the cafes also offered options for buying the animals they displayed, owls primarily, but also species as diverse as sugar gliders for $150 to $300, ball pythons for $455 to $1,290, secretary birds for $20,500, and red-tailed black cockatoos for $23,250. Some of the species were of particular concern, including critically endangered ones such as the pancake tortoise and the Central American river turtle. Others were of questionable origin. Bengal, Bengal, Bengal slow lorises and Sunda slow lorises, for example, are endangered species from South and Southeast Asia that are frequently the victims of poaching and are strictly banned from international trade. They are difficult to breed in captivity, Dr. Sagad said, and no professional facilities for these species exist in Japan. So where are they coming from, Dr. Sagad said. It's hard to believe they're legal. The international trade of 60% of the species the researchers identified in cafes is regulated by the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, or CITES, and most of these animals were registered as coming from captive breeding facilities when they were imported into Japan. Only 14% were marked as coming from the wild, though the researchers say this is likely an under underestimate because no records exist for, for the 40% of species not regulated by sites. 
Wild animals, such as otters, are also known to be laundered as captive bred to make their trade legal, they point out. In a site's data database search spanning 1975 to, to 2019, the researchers also found no records of any imports into Japan of seven species whose trade is strictly controlled but that are present at animal cafes, including the Bengal slow loris, spotted pond turtle, and barred eagle owl. These gaps trigger more questions than answers, Dr. Sarabian said. She and her colleagues also flagged welfare concerns at cafes. Animals can become stressed through constant handling. Birds of prey are chained to perches, and nocturnal species are made to interact with visitors throughout the day. Dr. Sarabian said, Dr. Sarabian said Nearly all species are kept in small cages and artificial environments and are looked after by people with no specific training or qualifications to work with wildlife. Kohei Kimura, the owner of Funny Creatures Forest, an animal cafe in Kyoto that specializes in reptiles, said he often heard criticisms like the ones raised by the new study, including that cafes keep protected species and that the animals there are mistreated. Mr. Kimura whose cafe exhibits around 40 types of reptiles, plus three owls and some tropical fish, said he took extra care to ensure he was not contributing to these problems. He sources all of his animals from wholesalers in Japan or breeds them himself. He forbids customers from touching the owls while they are sleeping, he said, and has built his own specialized cages for the reptiles because the commercially available cages are too small. Mr. Kimura, who has loved cold-blooded creatures since he was a child, said he opened his cafe to share the charm of reptiles with others. A big lizard can make you feel like you're raising a dinosaur. In Japan, reptiles are often disliked and thought to be scary, but in reality, many of them are gentle, he added. Timothy, Timothy Bonebreak, a conservation biologist at the University of Hong Kong, who was not involved in the research, said that the new study demonstrated the need for stronger regulations and oversight of Japan's exotic animal cafes. Overall, I think the analysis makes clear that there is an alarming number of threatened species in these cafes with questionable origin, he said. But he noted that with proper regulation, it may be possible for animal cafes to play an active role in conservation, much as many zoos do, by raising public awareness and fondness for wildlife. I do wonder often about the possible benefits, he said. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the March 28, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Peter Shea. Thank you for listening.